Welcome to Base Space. A crypto podcast. I want to officially welcome all of our listeners and and tour to the base space. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, this is a crypto podcast hosted by myself, the Crypto Mewtwo, Chase Coins, and Super High that creates opportunities for growth, networking, and education in the crypto industry. Today, we are honored to have Tor Bear, uh, founder of Secret Foundation, who also plays a key role in the Secret Network. Uh, welcome to the show, Tor. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely, man. We're, we're pumped to have you on. Um, for, it's, it's tradition here for all of our new guests that we bring on the show. We always like to ask them how they got into crypto. Cool. I'm down with the tradition. Uh, so let's see. I, I got into blockchain on the building side uh, when I was in grad school. So I was in, I was in grad school 2014 to 2016. I was at MIT when they were teaching the very first blockchain development courses, and I was cutting my MBA classes to hang out at the Media Lab and take those courses. Um, and of course, it was a really good decision. But I was paying attention to crypto starting probably closer to 2013, because in a past life, I was a derivatives trader, and I was attracted to anything that had obscene volatility. And at the time, the most volatile asset on the planet seemed to be Bitcoin. And at the time, it seemed like a, you know, it was a very volatile asset, but it also seemed like just like a gigantic bubble and nonsense and all of those other things. And it wasn't until grad school that I kind of took the technology seriously. And of course, one thing led to another and here I am, um, but I'm fully I'm fully admitting that I came to the space originally in terms of my attention from the from the volatility side. And then, you know, a, a lot of people kind of get attached to the space that way. It seems just really exciting. They know something's there, they don't want it is. And to be honest, a lot of them don't even know in which direction they feel about it. They just feel strongly about it. They either feel strongly it's a scam or it's the future. And then eventually only once you commit time to it, do you kind of commit yourself to one side of that argument. And I was fortunate enough to be in the right years around the right builders to decide that it was going to be the future of a lot of things and decided to commit my career to building out those technologies. But I had a lot of friends who at the same time as me were exploring crypto and Bitcoin and landed on the other side of the equation. They could only see the volatility. They could only see the markets side of it and they didn't dive as deep. And uh, they're still kind of on the outskirts of the industry wondering what they might've missed. Um, so I, I do think I'm lucky, very, very lucky in a lot of ways to have started paying attention when I did, but um, it is absolutely never too late to start paying attention to world-changing technology, regardless of how it catches your attention in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 always cool to to hear how people got involved. I uh, I originally basically back in 2017, I uh, heard from a bunch of my coworkers that there's this thing called Bitcoin. They were hopping into a bunch of ICOs at the time. And I kind of blew it off as a scam, right? <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people did that, uh, followed that tr similar path as well. So it's always kind of interesting to hear like um, how, how people uh, came across came across crypto and in the industry. 
Um, I'm kind of curious, like, how did you wind up, like, obviously founding the Secret Foundation and then, you know, uh, starting to work at Secret Network? So when I started working on this project full time, it was mid-2017. But I knew Guy Ziskind, who's the founder of Secret Labs, he was a researcher and grad student at MIT. When I was a grad student at MIT, he was actually one of the co-instructors of that very first, that very first blockchain course that I took at MIT. So when I found out that uh, he was trying to take these privacy technologies to market in the public blockchain space, there was just this awesome opportunity in 2017 to get involved full time. And I joined and there were really three of us <laughs> in 2017. Now it's a little bit bigger than that, um, but I was the I was the head of growth for the for the entity that's now Secret Labs, where a guy was the founder. Uh, I was their head of growth for three years, and then left to start Secret Foundation as a separate entity in mid 2020. So Foundation's been around for about a year and a half now, and uh, we work very closely with not only Secret Labs but the rest of the Secret Network ecosystem to work on growth for the network. We really own. Uh, a lot of stuff around marketing and community growth and everything from developer onboarding to business development is something else that, that we pay a lot of attention to, too. But primarily what we care about is how do we get a million or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of users using privacy first technologies in Web3? That, that's what gets me up in the morning. That's really what our organization does. And we are very fortunate to work alongside a lot of incredible developers and builders in our ecosystem from the protocol level to the application level and beyond to get to solve that, to solve that problem. And obviously we've come a long way since 2017, but it does feel like we're only just scratching the surface of adoption. It, it does still feel super, super nascent. And it's cool to finally see some of this stuff in 2021 and 22 really hitting the mainstream uh, especially on the NFT and metaverse side, it finally feels culturally relevant and not just technologically interesting. Yeah, like you've definitely obviously been uh, working with Secret Network, you know, since 2017. Um, I'm curious, like, what's what's kind of like the most important lesson you've learned, you know, throughout your time working on the working within this ecosystem and and uh, within the Secret Network. Man, what a question. Uh, to distill it to one learning is kind of tough, but I would say maybe, maybe it's two sides of a coin. I, I've learned that you have to tune out a whole lot of noise and you have to zoom out a lot to stay focused and, and really think about what matters, especially if you're looking to be self-sustainable for you know decades, not just a month. Um, but on... The same token, I would also say, while you're tuning out the noise, you have to be willing to listen to voices from anywhere. And one of the things I think we've done best as an ecosystem is really involve members of the community at every stage. And we're a lot more community driven and grassroots than a lot of Web3 projects, which is a point of pride for us. Um, and we listen to every voice in the ecosystem, anybody who has Ideas, now ideas, of course, backed by data and strategy and everything else. But if there's an idea and there's the human capital willing to push it, there is a door to walk through in our ecosystem to push that idea forward. 
So it's this mix of really being committed to openness, openness to ideas, openness to people, openness to the future of these technologies. And at the same time, you have to kind of ruthlessly edit out the negative voices or the voices of fear that are telling you that, you know, we, we've been building through a couple cycles now. So yeah, we know everything can fall apart at any minute, but that doesn't deter us from the mission. And the mission is to get millions of users onboarded with privacy first web three technologies. And as long as you're not taking your eye off that ball and you strongly communicate that that's your aim and your mission, you end up attracting thousands of people to that mission alongside you. And then it's just easy to listen to them to know where you're supposed to take things next. Uh, so summarizing, it's, it's that mix of having an open mind and, and listening, but also being able to block out the distractions and the negativity when it's time to execute. Yeah, I, I love that because even as just like, some, I'm, not, I'm not a developer, but as an investor, right, being able to be open, but still filtering everything out is, is still a big challenge in the space that's rapidly growing with so much new new development happening in Web3, especially, you know, during during this current cycle with DeFi and CeFi and, and, all, these, and all these awesome uh, NFT projects that are popping up too. No doubt. Uh, I, I guess maybe part of that mindset does come from my trading background. I do think that having a trading background, I wouldn't say that you have to be a trader to build. I, I mean, a great builder can come from any background. But what I love about having had a trading and liquidity background before getting involved on the project side is that it does teach you a lot about having a mindset and probabilistic thinking and all these great first principles that help you keep focused uh, and help think on a systems level instead of being a really linear thinker, especially in the crypto space, that just doesn't work. You're trying to say things are like this today and they'll be 10% different in a month or 50% different in a year. Crypto is not that way. Everything's reflexive. Everything feeds back on itself. You have to be able to project out orders of magnitude of difference in the evolution of an ecosystem. And you have to think in tipping points uh, instead of just putting one foot in front of the other. So I would say that the trading mindset is a building mindset. And if more builders thought like traders, they'd probably be more successful. I would also say that if more traders thought like builders and, and had a long-term mindset, they wouldn't go broke and they wouldn't use so much leverage. So we have a lot to learn from each other. Yeah. Hey, Tor, Chase here. Um, I feel like this is kind of like a good segue leading into to discuss Secret Network kind of at a high level. Uh, before before we kind of do a deeper dive, though, into what Secret is, could you just kind of give the audience for a frame of reference your best elevator pitch for what Secret is and why it is unique compared to other L1s that we're currently seeing in the landscape? Happy to. So the elevator pitch really is that Secret is different from every other L1 that you see. Every L1 that's existed to date in the blockchain space is a public by default blockchain. And what that means is the data being used by that blockchain is public to everyone, not just the user, but anybody who would not just be interacting with the blockchain, but even glancing at it. You're, you're getting a full picture of all the data being utilized by these applications. And if you're running a miner or a validator in one of these networks, you actually even get to see the future. You see all that public data first and you have an informational advantage. And 
because every L1 blockchain works this way, they all kind of have the same flaws. They all have the same sort of vulnerabilities. These things that we wouldn't exactly call uh, intentional design features like minor extractable value and things like that are common to all public by default L1s. So what Secret Network is, is it's still a permissionless blockchain, just like Ethereum, Solana, what have you, but it can be both permissionless and privacy preserving. It's a private by default blockchain, and it's just a different model for the data within a permissionless blockchain. Everything starts encrypted by default, only knowable and visible to the user of an address. And only if that user consents or shares access, can anybody else decrypt the nature of that user's interaction with a contract on the network. Uh, so before you know, getting too in the weeds, all that really means is to say, it's the only private by default layer one, it's the only layer one that allows you to build applications and use smart contracts that can use encrypted inputs, encrypted outputs, encrypted state for the, the contracts that are deployed on the network. And it's opening up a design space for applications that's a hundred times larger, a completely new degree of programmability for smart contracts where you've evolved from first transfer of value to programmable value and now programmable value and programmable privacy and programmable access for the data that's even being used by these applications. It's, it's another step in the evolution and yet it's still built to be interoperable with all of these other L1 networks. It's not trying to replace Ethereum. It's just trying to be a different kind of chain with a larger design space and a larger mission. Yeah, I, I, I love that kind of breakdown. And I personally, I, I'm extremely bullish on privacy L1s. I, I think for us to really kind of see scalability within DeFi, I think it, it's just imperative that we have um, privacy within our transactions and our, and our finances in this ecosystem. Um, but kind of like building off that, you know, what, what new use cases do you see this kind of um, creating or what new narratives do you think this will bring to the entire industry when people have that capability of having privacy within smart contracts? Great question. Uh, it, it's gotten a lot more tangible for people, right? The problem with privacy a lot of the time is that it's not tangible for us. We don't really sense a privacy violation in real time. It's only after the fact that we sort of suffer from having lost privacy or lost control. Um, but now there's actually a lot more use cases in the, in the Web3 space that are making it much more tangible for people in real time. And to give an example, I'll, I'll focus on actually the NFT side. Because when people think of privacy and blockchain, I think their minds naturally jump to private transactions and, and for good reason, right? There's good reasons to want privacy for our financial lives. In the real world, only our banks know what we're doing with our bank accounts. We don't have to reveal it to our neighbors or to strangers by default. But the way the blockchain space works is everything you do on ETH is public by default and by design. Uh, that's already bad. But again, you, you can kind of only feel that after the fact sometimes. But let's take NFTs as an example. Uh, an NFT on a public by default blockchain, Ethereum, Solana, whatever, they have public metadata, they have public ownership, and that's your only option. You don't get to say, I privately own this NFT. You don't get to say this NFT has private metadata that only the owner can view. So it's a very narrow design space. And that's why most of the NFTs that are being used are these flex NFTs 
or these PFP uh, NFTs where you get to say, I'm a member of a community, but that's about it. I mean, it doesn't really go much deeper than that. I think it's a really shallow use case relative to the potential of what non-fungible tokens could mean. On secret, by design and by default, you immediately get this additional degree of programmability. So you can have either public ownership or private ownership. You can have either public metadata or private metadata, where the private metadata is only visible by the owner or only by accounts that the owner selects to be able to have that access to the private metadata. Immediately, you can see the kinds of use cases that that unlocks just from having this layer one functionality for NFTs. So you can immediately have uh, like an art NFT where in the public metadata, you have the lower resolution image and only the owner gets to view the higher resolution image. Or you can code uh, a gallery where only the accounts you select are able to view your NFT collection and you can rent that access. Uh, Or if you look at gaming and metaverse use cases, what if you wanted to build a Web3 game and you wanted to use imperfect information? I would say that almost any interesting game, maybe chess excluded, involves some degree of imperfect information between parties who are participating in the game. Without privacy, everybody has the same knowledge of the game state. Like if you're playing poker, that's that's basically like being able to see the other person's hand. And also basically being able to see the entire state of a deck of, stu- of shuffled cards. So if you start thinking about it for more than a couple minutes, you start to see how any kind of privacy, any kind of imperfect information between parties. I mean, if you think about privacy that way, it becomes a lot more obvious why you might want imperfect information between parties in any kind of scenario. Maybe it's private voting, private auctions. All of this becomes possible with a private by default layer one. And on a public by default chain, the problem is you can't just re-encrypt something that's already been revealed. Cryptography only works in one direction. That's the whole way that cryptography works. If it's private, you can always reveal it with your key. If it's public, you can't put the cat back in the bag. So Secret Network unlocks all the use cases where any data needs to be private at some point, at any point in the process from any party. And on other networks because you're forced to reveal all data to all parties in the process of using the application, it just eliminates so much of what should be possible with permissionless applications. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really interesting take. Um, One I haven't really thought about myself, you know, you kind of think about as you kind of like hit the nail on the head, you think about privacy as a necessity uh, within your transactions or, you know, hiding transactions within DeFi, but this really kind of opens up for game theory to play out on an even more in-depth level to where it's an actually privacy is an additional add-on feature in which you can have more creative use cases that are actually built out of that, um, whether that's through GameFi or even NFTs. I'm actually curious, though, could you, could you kind of touch on how you add privacy into a smart contract and how that really is kind of different from the smart contracts that we're used to interacting uh, with today on like Ethereum? or any of the other EVM chains that we're bridging to? Yeah, gladly. So it actually comes down to how we achieve this uh, at the network level, because we we have a very unique requirement of the validators in our network. Uh, So the way that we're currently achieving privacy for smart contracts is through the use of both software, 
based privacy solutions uh, like key exchange cryptography and then also hardware based privacy solutions where you have to use uh, as a validator, you have to operate with an enclave, a secure enclave active. And what the blockchain is actually doing is, in effect, executing inside that secure enclave. And as a user, to be able to decrypt what you're doing in interaction with the contracts in the network, you know, you have the decryption key to be able to see what you yourself are doing. And if you were to look at the block explorer for secret network, you would be able to see addresses interacting with contracts, but you wouldn't be able to see anything about the nature of that contract interaction. So you could see an address interacting with a token contract. You couldn't see whether it was telling the token contract to send value of any amount to any address. You just see this encrypted interaction. Only the owner of that address is able to decrypt the nature of that interaction. And all of that is made possible by this privacy functionality at layer one uh, and the use of these secure enclaves where uh, that, that's really how the that, that's how the access control mechanism works uh, fundamentally at a, at a user level where only they are going to be able to use the key to even see their own activity. It adds some user friction depending on how you are, we, we have both a, a viewing key mechanism by which users can decrypt their own interaction with contracts. And we have a query permit system by which users can, uh, in effect, the same thing, right? Like they can decrypt and see their own interactions with contracts in the network. Um, depending on which one is used, there's some different technical trade-offs. But the in effect, it's the same in that the control is in the hands of the user who's interacting with the contract. Uh, only they can choose who else should have access to be able to degrip the nature of that interaction. And all of this is regulated, again, at layer one, not within any particular application built on the network. Uh, every token in the network, every contract in the network works this way, which means you can have privacy, but also composability. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Like um, secure enclaves and those tr trusted execution environments is like a topic I've been kind of um, a little bit more interested in and reading into. Um, so it's really interesting to see like how that plays a role within your guys' solutions. I'm actually curious. This brings up the point though. How do you think regulations um, are going to kind of like come into the fold in this? Is that a concern that you have? It is a concern that I have for public by default blockchains and i'll explain um i actually am shocked that we've built out web3 as far as we have uh with this public by default system that don't have any sort of protections or guarantees for users because their data is constantly being exposed by default and if you look at this system in the web2 world companies get fined billions of dollars for exposing sensitive user data, for example, or, or providing improper access to that data that users have not consented to. And in Web3, it just kind of seems like we all take for granted that all the data we provide to the blockchain is going to be public to all parties by default. And we're always, in effect, consenting to front running, because as we said, in public by default chains, miners can see the transactions coming into the mempool but before anybody else, and they can, in, in effect, insert their own transactions ahead of any users. In the real world, front running is illegal. 
leaking data, sensitive data is illegal. There's plenty of regulations around this. And these are just things that happen constantly in the Web3 space. We take it for granted because this is how the systems worked when we built them. There, it was hard to add privacy. In fact, nearly impossible to add privacy, especially if you're trying to do it after the fact. Putting the cat back in the bag just can't be done. So when regulators are looking at the Web3 space, I think people have a misconception about how they feel about privacy. Privacy is always something that we've legislated and tried to protect. But there's been so much coverage in the media about how, how private transactions might be nefarious and require regulation, how it's all money laundering. We forget that that's still the vast minority of crypto activity. It, it's also something that's really prevalent in the, in the banking world. Um, what regulators are really concerned about is user protections. And they've gone after everybody from you know, Facebook to Uber to Equifax for all of these data failings in Web 2. We don't want Web 3 to end up 100 times worse just because all the data gets leaked by default and because everybody decided that was okay. What I'm worried is that we're going to wake up in a couple of years. We've only built these public by default Web 3 systems. And yes, they're more auditable, but they're substantially less secure. And there are massive privacy violations, the kind that regulators will not be accepting of. The way that I talk about it when I talk about it on stage is I say, governments do understand privacy and they very much value privacy. They don't always value your privacy, but they totally get privacy. They love their privacy. They, they love having their government secrets and things like that. But privacy is definitely a concept that they can understand. And when they do see that it's being violated, they they are historically rather quick to act. It does become like a hot button issue that they can jump on. So the, the less rambling answer to am I concerned about regulation is I, I, I don't really know where regulators are going to land on this stuff, but I do know how they've landed on it in the Web 2 world. And if they take any kind of similar track in the Web 3 world, I'm far more concerned about the consequences for chains like Ethereum than for chains like Secret that, again, they're private by default, but there's always that option as a user to expose it and to make your data auditable. The point was to leave that control in the hands of the user or to have that control exist at all. And on a public by default network with no controls, I don't know that that's going to be regulatory compliant when we really try to drive these things to actual adoption, not, not just these kind of like small scale pieces of adoption that we've achieved so far, but real institutional adoption. I don't think either institutions or regulators are going to accept the lack of privacy that we've seen to date. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really insightful response because, and you really kind of touched on this, but thinking around a lot of the social media giants or even, you know, big tech companies, they are held to legislation like the GDPR out of the European Union, which is, um, you know, the general data protection regulation where it focuses on having that additional privacy guarantee for the users. And so it is kind of interesting that in today's landscape for Web3, I would say that your take is actually kind of contrarian because a lot of people, when they think of privacy and they combine that with these permissionless protocols, it almost comes comes across as bearish in terms of regulation, right? But I, I think there's actually, and you kind of really touch on this, is like it's actually really bullish for especially privacy protocols that are providing those solutions because it fits that narrative of the GDPR and combining that in this new paradigm right. paradigm shift into Web3. 
Yeah, when you hear the word privacy, you've got to flip it in your head. Like we, we say, as much as secret is about programmable privacy, it's also about programmable transparency. Privacy and transparency are just two sides of one coin. And that coin is consent and choice. If you choose to keep it private, you can. If you choose to reveal it, you can. But a public by default network is a one-sided coin and there are no controls. So rather than get tricked into thinking that privacy is something kind of nefarious, you have to think of it as being the cornerstone of all consent and of all choice. And if Web3 is supposed to be about increasing user empowerment and consent and choice and all of these buzzwords and you know, to some it's buzzwords, to us it's the entire reason for the project to exist. But once you sort of reorient your mind around that core point, once you sort of see that, you can't unsee it. And you start to realize all the ways in which that narrative gets misused to enforce outcomes that are really negative for end users, but maybe positive for surveillance capitalism. And if we already have a really great global economic system for optimizing surveillance capitalism. We didn't need blockchain to make it any better. I'm not really in the business of, of improving the shitty system that we already have. I, I would rather build something that works better. And we can't take our eye off the ball. Otherwise, it's, it's just going to end up a, a worse version of what we've already got. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to circle back to um, kind of a topic that I think you kind of briefly had hinted to um, without using the term, but viewing keys. Could you kind of touch on what exactly viewing keys are in the um, what that kind of enables within secret? And then also, is there any potential possibility of those viewing keys being breached um, from like a security perspective? Yeah, well, what they are is a key. And the way that keys work in the real world is they unlock something, right? You, you, you can then reveal what's inside of a locked box. And because we're saying secret is private by default, the question is, you know, what is being hidden and who holds the key? In the case of viewing keys, if you are the owner of an address, you can generate a viewing key that allows you to decrypt your own interactions with a contract on the network. So let's say you uh, have a token on the network, just like you have an ERC-20 on Ethereum, you can have a SNP-20 on secret. That's, that's the fungible token standard on secret that we're most often talking about. With your viewing key, when you interact with that SNP-20 contract, you can see what you did. So you can see where you sent it. You can see the quantity of the token that was transacted, all those other things. If you don't hold that viewing key and you look at that interaction on the blockchain, it's going to be a big mess of numbers and letters. You can't see what happened at all. And that's intentional. However, if you're the user and you share that viewing key, then somebody else could decrypt the nature of that interaction. But that somebody else doesn't have to be a person. You don't have to like physically hand it to somebody and say, here's my key, go check it out. It's also a permission that you could share with a contract because a con any other contract on the network can't necessarily by default be able to decrypt your interaction with a different contract on that network. It's something that as a user, you have to consent to. And then you can create that interaction. So that's how viewing keys work in the network. It's just how we enforce this idea of access control for data in the network. I also mentioned we have this query permit system, which is a different way 
of achieving the same result, essentially. And there's different trade-offs for each in terms of cost, like gas costs or performance or security. But they're, they're essentially trying to enforce the same thing, which is that control falls in the hands of the user that can generate that query permit or generate that viewing key, meaning the owner of the address. As to the security properties, like could these viewing keys be leaked or this or this, it's just like any other key. If you leak your private key, you're in trouble. Like never share your private keys, don't share your seed phrase, all these really, really, really important security properties. Now, viewing keys are at a slightly less existential level. They're just giving you the access to view something that occurred. If you share your viewing key with somebody, they can't go and transfer assets out of your wallet. They could see the nature of some interaction you've made with a contract though. So there are all kinds of things you have to build in for security within programming applications now that you have to be thinking about uh, for viewing key security and how these contracts are going to talk to each other. It's another aspect of programmability that you have to consider. But remember the alternative. The alternative is that everything is public by default, that every application, every user gets exactly the same access to your data as every other. That's not a good system. It's not terribly uh, customizable or programmable. It's definitely a security risk. So even though it creates some additional complexity, the expanded design space and the expanded control for users is well worth the trade-off. And you just have to remember, like, keys are valuable. Don't share keys in ways that you don't intend. Um, and, and thankfully, as I said, it's, it's not as existential as losing your assets. I always say, if for some reason you were able to compromise every piece of privacy on secret, which has not been done, and I don't even think has been attempted. But if for some reason you did somehow compromise all of secret networks privacy, the worst thing you would do is you would turn it into Ethereum. It would just become a public by default chain. Uh, Tor, this kind of brings up an idea. Are you guys allowing like temporary viewing keys? Um, so if I wanted to like temporarily show someone, I don't know, health data, I didn't want my doctor to hold it, but I want to still hold, still hold it. But for some reason, you know, I want to share it with them temporarily, say for seven days. Is that, is that something that's possible? Yeah. I mean, these are really important use cases, right? Can you, can you also have these kind of temporal use cases and renting access um, it gets a little bit more complex because kind of what you would be doing is uh, you would have access to that data not owned by a user, but by a smart contract. And then you would have access to that smart contract also regulated in some way. So it, it becomes a little bit fractal, a little bit meta. But the short answer is yes, you can do things like that. Time is hard. Like it's hard for blockchains to tell time. It's easier for them to tell things like block height, for example. Um, but these are use cases that are possible. It, it goes back to that NFT gallery rental use case that I was talking about too. Uh, you can do things like that with secret. Then you just have to be really aware of all of the different um, attack vectors and threats that are, that are unique to this, right? Like what happens if there's some kind of offline attack to, to get data uh, still offline with the same viewing key. What happens if you're rendering the data locally and somebody chooses to try to save that data locally after it's been rendered? Like, th there's a lot of different considerations, and and it's not perfect, um, but 
it's certainly a vast improvement over where we are right now. Um, the, the, a lot of this concern is just also like, where is the data ultimately stored? Like for NFTs, um, you could, it, it depends if you're storing all of the data on chain or if there is some sort of off chain storage, is it encrypted storage? Like it, it, it gets pretty complicated. I don't, I don't really want to drag it out and say that like, this is really easy to understand, but the important thing is, yes, these are use cases that are being actively explored in our ecosystem. I do think that this is the future of Web3 technology, um, and you can only build it if you're considering native privacy uh, at layer one. That That's the way that you should be starting to think about these issues. Anything else opens up uh, a lot of security risks and privacy risks that we shouldn't have to be dealing with in Web3 if we want to build these kinds of applications that you're thinking about. Yeah, I feel like this would be a good time actually to pivot and talk about um, Secret, the native coin uh, of Secret Network. Could you kind of touch on the primary use cases um, within the ecosystem that Secret plays? Uh, You're talking about the coin itself? Sorry. Secret, yeah, SCRT, yeah, 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 yeah. That one's easy. So just like ETH on a, and on Ethereum, just like Sol on Solana, the main utility of Secret in Secret Network is it is the gas of the network. It makes everything go. So when you're interacting with a contract, when you're sending a token around the network, when you're decrypting the metadata of an NFT, all of these things that require gas payments, you're paying Secret. It just makes it makes the whole thing work. Uh, but we're also a delegated proof-of-stake network. So proof-of-stake network, Ethereum is transitioning into a proof-of-stake network. You already have networks like Cosmos, Terra, et cetera, that are delegated proof-of-stake networks. What it means is if you run a node in the network, you can stake secret with your node, and that's how you secure the network. If you're holding secret, you can delegate your secret and stake it with any of the nodes that are active in the network. And you, as a secret staker, either you're running a node or you're delegating to a node, you're getting a share of the block rewards that are being generated in the network. So it's also a staking coin. And if you're staking your secret, it is also a governance coin. We have on-chain governance for secret. I think we've had something like 70 on-chain proposals to this point. So we have a very active uh, ecosystem. And when you have on-chain governance like that, the entire network is effectively functioning as a DAO. And people are voting on changing network parameters or spend proposals, or it could just be a text-based signaling proposal. But your secret is also entitling you to say in how the protocol itself is governed and changing over time. Um, so those utilities uh, are pretty consistent with what you see in other Tendermint slash Cosmos-based networks where you can... Use it for gas and for computational fees. You're using it for staking. You're using it for governance. But Secret is used however the applications also decide to use it. There's plenty of applications on Ethereum that use ETH in all kinds of crazy ways beyond gas. Um, so in our DeFi ecosystem, in our NFT ecosystem, in our access control ecosystem, whatever utilities people come up with for Secret becomes a utility for the coin in the network and in the application layer. Um, I've always said that secrets are the currencies of culture just in the real world that's that's kind of how it works access access is power access is a currency and i i love the idea of the branding of the entire network being built around the idea that secrets are currency 
in our own network because privacy is valuable, data is valuable, access to that data is, is extremely valuable and control and consent over how that data is used is extremely valuable. So therefore your secrets are valuable. Most people on our network choose to stake their secrets, hold their secrets, keep them tight. Um, but it still has a lot of utility within the network just like ETH does on Ethereum. And as network usage grows and demand for secret grows, uh, it does provide a lot of demand back into the layer one coin. Yeah, that is uh, really poetic, actually. Um, let's say I want to be a validator of secrets. Uh, what, what are the requirements to uh, become a validator within a network? So it's permissionless. Anybody can set up a validator and start up a node, but there are those hardware requirements like I talked about. Nodes in the network do have this added degree of hardware requirements where they have to operate a machine that does have these secure enclaves enabled that are patched. Uh, we, we actually require quite a high degree of compliance for patched nodes in the network. When you're a permissionless network, you can't take any chances. You can't say, okay, run your kind of patched node in the network. Um, in a permissioned system, maybe that can fly because you know every party that's operating, you trust everybody, maybe by default. In the blockchain space, the default usually is don't trust anybody, meaning we need really high degrees of security for having a node and choosing to join the network. We need to know that you're running the latest patches for any of the hardware so that even any sort of speculative vulnerability that's been discovered is not something that's exploitable on our network. That's for user security, application security, everything else. But outside of that requirement, um, operating a node in the network is uh, not too different from operating a node in other delegated proof of stake networks. Um, and there's a lot of cloud providers that do support uh, running secret nodes in the cloud. A lot of uh, nodes and validators in our ecosystem choose to run their own hardware, which is awesome and good for decentralization. Uh, so we're hoping to uh, continue to expand the network over time. It is a permissionless network, but currently we have a max cap on the number of nodes in the active set. Over time, that cap has been expanding. We want to continue to expand it. Um, it's good for decentralization, again, uh, meaning there is a minimum stake to be in the active set. So while anybody can start a node right now, you need to be in the top 70 nodes currently by stake to be counted in the active set. I don't know what the cutoff is right now for that. Uh, but it doesn't all have to be self-delegated tokens. You could start a node even with one secret. And if you can get people to delegate secret to you, you'll be in the active set uh, and you can start earning rewards as a node in the network and earning commissions. The nice thing is, even if you have absolutely zero hardware expertise, you have no interest in doing node upkeep or anything else, you can delegate to any of the incredible nodes that are already operating in the network, already supporting the network, and you can still be a participant in governance, you can still be earning your share of network rewards. That's the beauty of delegated proof of stake is that you can be involved as a delegator, even if you're not operating a node. That's how we can have, you know, the max cap of 70 nodes in the network. But I think we have over 30,000 individual delegators in the network currently and growing fast. Um, so if you're listening to this and you have secret and you're not staking it, highly, highly recommend that you stake it. You don't have to learn how to operate a node. It's cool if you do but we've got really incredible node operators already who are supporting the network and the ecosystem. They would be glad to have your support as a delegator uh, with your secret. No reason to hold it on exchange when you can just be earning passive money for helping secure the network as well. Yeah, that's, that's really good information. Um, 
I think that gives us like a really good overview. You know, we had, you broke down the SNP 20 standard um, of the secret tokens. You talked about the viewing keys. Um, and we talked about kind of like the primary function of SCRT, the coin in and of itself, then the ecosystem. The next kind of area that I want to touch on is actually the secret bridges. Could you kind of touch on, on what the secret bridges are and how users can, can utilize uh, those bridges um, to interact within your ecosystem? Secret bridges are really just a way to get assets into and out of the secret verse. And right now they're concentrated on fungible token transfers. But because we connect to a lot of different kinds of networks, all these bridges have different security properties and they go different places. So you can think of secret, we've always positioned secret as the web three privacy hub. So think about a town or maybe think about a planet sitting in the middle of a vast galaxy and that's secret. And you wanna be able to send assets into and out of this uh, shadowy secret verse. Uh, not again, because you're trying to do anything weird while you're on secret, but just like, it's, it's kind of a fundamental expectation that we should have of web three that when we have assets, we expect privacy and security for them by default. So I think of secret as a hub for issuance, settlement and storage of assets. And over time, there's going to be more and more reasons to store your assets by default on a private by default network. But you're only going to do that if it's also got a ton of ways for it to be highly productive assets in that network. Uh, a network that has highly productive assets is going to have two qualities. First, there's going to be a lot of things to do when you get there. So you have to have a lot of applications running on the network with utility. And then you also have to have a ton of bridges. You have to be able to get anywhere from there, go into secret from anywhere. So yes, we're building out the application layer because we want a lot of utility while you're on the network, but we're also building out a lot of bridges because we want you to be able to get into and out of secret from any blockchain in the universe. Some of our bridges go to EVM networks like Ethereum and like Binance Smart Chain. Some of our bridges go to places like Monero, which I call like privacy to privacy bridging. You take a private by default asset and you bridge it into a private by default DeFi ecosystem like secret network. Uh, we also have IBC enabled. So we're part of the cosmos, meaning you can send assets to and from other IBC enabled chains. So that gives us a bridge to Osmosis, a bridge to Terra, a bridge to the Atom Hub, uh, a bridge to Juno, all these other places. And you can take assets from those networks, bring them into secret, wrap them as private versions of those assets and use them on secret however you want. And when you're done, you unwrap them and send them back to their original public by default universes. So depending on which bridge we're talking about, we're talking about a different technology that's securing that bridge. But once everything's on secret, they really all take the same form. They take the form of these wrapped private by default secret tokens. So secret tokens are the magic that live on the other end of these secret bridges. And once you're on secret network, these secret tokens really can do anything. You can use them in any application. You can exchange them for each other. And all of this happens with privacy by default. So in that manner, we're, we're extending privacy as a service to any other chain that we're bridged to. But you can also issue native assets on secret network as secret tokens and have the native coin of whatever application you're building on secret be a secret token. Uh, so you 
get this privacy hub, not only by being the center of this universe and having a ton of bridges, but just having standalone sovereign applications just on your network that can also be bridged out into other universes if necessary. Um, so that's the vision of secret bridges and secret tokens and kind of how they interrelate. But it's important to remember that these bridges, depending on where they're going, they're built differently, they're secured differently. Um, what's most important to us is what happens on our side of the bridge. Once you're in secret, once you're in the secret verse, we want you to have those strong data privacy guarantees. And we know that once you bridge out a secret and you're going to a public by default network, you're going to lose a lot of those guarantees. There's really no way around that. If one side of the bridge is public, you can't just make everything private on the other side. The entire other chain on the other side of the bridge isn't built that way. So what we concentrate on is making sure that once your assets are in the secret universe, that you get the privacy that you're expecting, but you also get that vast utility within the secret ecosystem and all these applications like I'm talking about. It needs to be both private and productive for us to be the privacy hub um, that is accruing and creating this much value in the Web3 multiverse. Yeah. And I, and I believe you guys use a three of five multi-sig for the bridge. Um, I, I see kind of a future where it's kind of like leads to a higher degree of centralization. And I don't think this is necessarily unique for Seeker. I think this is kind of commonplace for bridges right now in a lot of places. But from like a technical perspective, is there a solution to kind of move away from this model in the long term that you guys are kind of thinking about or potentially exploring? Well, IBC is one of those solutions, right? So the, these multi-sig bridges are very common in the EDM universe, like Avalanche uses something similar. Actually, a lot of places uh, will use like what I would call affectionately a one-on-one multi-sig is effectively how some of these network bridges work. At least we don't do that. Um, but the trade-off, just so people know, the trade-off is usually always between security, centralization, cost, performance, security. Um, did I say security twice? Either way. Uh, there's always a trade-off uh, in these bridge models between chains. It's always, almost always the weakest point of any system, which is why I say we care about what happens when you're on secret. Most of all, we want to maintain those security properties. It's really hard to bridge with it between ecosystems and keep a high degree of security. So IBC is closer to that multi-chain future vision that we're talking about. IBC is not this like three of five multi-sig model. It's a relayer model, probably too technical to get into depth on this space about, but it's part of why the Cosmos ecosystem narrative is blowing up right now as people are realizing interoperability is critical and these more scalable models for interoperability between chains where it's, you know, not just these individualized three of five multi-sig bridges, but this generalizable bridging model and relayer model, that's probably going to be the future of blockchain interoperability. And we've always embraced that. Like we're a Cosmos chain. We, we love that vision of interoperability, but we also didn't want to say in the short term, we don't care about ETH. We don't care about Monero. We don't care about these other universes. We care about every blockchain universe. We want to bring privacy to every network. I would think that our bridge models are going to become more trustless, not more centralized over time. And that's going to be based on both our technical work and technical work being done elsewhere in the cosmos and beyond. That's part of our ethos. We want to get there. But the trade-off can't be that users get harmed or that the bridges themselves become completely unusable 
in the interim. There has to still be utility for users and it has to be an acceptable level of friction for users. And I, I, what I'm hoping to see is even more innovation on the bridge side. We, we don't think that we are a particularly innovative bridging project. We use best practices. We think we're a groundbreaking innovative privacy project. So we differentiate on that, but we will use whatever best practices exist for bridges in the blockchain space. We've always built for interoperability and, and for using standards across the Cosmos space and outside of it. That's what we're going to continue to do. Uh, I definitely think that all of these models can be improved upon. Hey, Tor, uh, super here. So I, you've answered a lot of my questions, kind of just as Chase has been asking them. So I appreciate uh, you for going in-depth on a lot of that. But I just wanted to roll back to NFTs and kind of ask what what unique use cases you think uh, Secret you know, has for NFTs because for instance, I think like the access controls will be huge for freelance artists. For example, like I, I used to run a photography business and I would send the watermarked photos first to a client, you know, obviously to make sure they liked them. Uh, and then once they paid, you know, I'd send the regular ones. Do you see freelancers totally. being utilized these private smart contracts for, uh, you know, for their business? Yeah. And I want to stress in my answer that this, what I'm about to say is not speculation. Like people are already doing this on mainnet. Like this, this is live shit that people are already doing, especially on the artist site. And I already talked a little bit about my background. What I didn't say is that I, I'm also a musician and a creator and I care very diff deeply about these web three use cases. And when I was at MIT doing this blockchain research in these courses, I actually wasn't taking the trader mindset. I did all of my MBA research on digital rights management with blockchain. And I ran into a wall super quick about how is privacy going to work for the royalty payments on a transactional level, uh, but for access control uh, on a content level. So, you know, I had an appreciation for it. I had no idea what the solution was. Thankfully, you know, Guy was writing his privacy papers at the same time. So somebody was thinking about a solution. I was lucky to be able to latch on to what was uh, an incredible uh, technical direction and, and just be a part of that growth story. But to your point, so that use case of just being able to put in the public metadata, the watermarked image, and in the private metadata, the full resolution image, that, just that even super basic use case says, okay, you go to an NFT marketplace on secret, like Stash is our primary NFT marketplace. So you go to Stash and you... Uh, mint an NFT where the public metadata is the watermarked image. Now, unless somebody buys it, they can't decrypt that private metadata that corresponds to the unwatermarked image. They can't get that AK version. They can't display it in their gallery. So this right-click save thing that's been going on in the NFT space where the entire value of the NFT, this is why I refer to public by default NFTs as shallow. The entire utility of that NFT is contained within the public information that's accessible by every user or observer of the blockchain. On secret, that's not the case. There's a special relationship between the creator and the collector and whomever the collector is sharing access with. There's actually differentiation in who has access to that content. And unless you're purchasing that content or renting access to that content, you don't get all of the utility from that content. It's a model that creators are a lot more comfortable with. But also on the collector side, it gives you a lot more confidence that the thing that you're buying is actually going to hold its value. Because once you own it, you don't also own it along with 
every other person who's ever observed the blockchain. You don't worry about somebody going and scraping the full resolution version of the thing you just bought and re-uploading it and, and doing that somewhere. Like the whole point is that there's been this special relationship created and it's a relationship that has been paid for and then mediated by the network at layer one. So it's definitely a better model for creators, but that, again, that's just to me such a simple, I didn't want to say trivial because it, it would imply that this is a trivial use case in, in that it's like not very meaningful. It's super meaningful. It's just really simple to see how this is enabled by the contract itself, being able to utilize private metadata that's only decryptable by a certain party. That's one of the basic functionalities of the network that you're getting for free, realistically, as, as a developer, or as a creator, we solve all of that privacy for you. It's just up to you what you're going to build with it or how you're going to build your business or, or your creator economy on top of that. We didn't want people to have to figure that out from scratch every time. And right now, it just feels like any creator who wants to really make a sustainable model for themselves in Web3 is constantly solving that problem from scratch or trying to hack around things or just praying that I guess somebody doesn't exploit their work. And that's that's not sustainable. We, we definitely think that Secret is finally paving a path to a self-sustainable creator economy through NFTs. And that is just scratching the surface of what's going to be possible. Yeah, no, that's really exciting to hear. No more uh, right-click and saves. Unless I guess it's a Twitter profile, then, you know, <laughs> those trolls will still be... <laughs> <laughs> i but was uh, i i actually know some of the guys who worked on that twitter project internally and they were like yeah all the demands for eth right now so we're not considering these other networks but they're very well aware of the advantages of this private by default model if they could query the secret blockchain and be like okay this guy owns it but we're not going to out the address that attached it you know right now the problem is that any nft that's displayed publicly where you can trace it back to the contract you you can see exactly which address is holding it and now the entire wallet is doxxed. There's definitely a lot of advantages to having a private by default model for ownership, whether you're integrating with a Web3 or a Web2 network. And this just makes a shit ton more sense. It's just that there's so much more usage for Ethereum right now because they had a five-year head start. Um, you know, But Bitcoin had a five or six-year head start on Ethereum and there's you know the flippening is almost here. So I, I don't really think about that. I just think about what's going to drive utility for the greatest number of users. And inevitably, I think the arc of history bends towards that. Hey, Tor, I also wanted to ask about uh, this, the Secret Network offering $400 million in funding. I saw you guys uh, were kind of doing a split fund, $225 million ecosystem fund and $175 million accelerator fund to help scale the network. Could you talk to us about what this means uh, for the secret network and what what, what will it bring uh, to the ecosystem? Totally. Yeah, I, I get so caught up in the in the ethos, in the mission side of it sometimes that I forget to throw around really big numbers. And that's poor marketing on my part. I apologize. Uh, we did just reveal that we have uh, a very large pool of funding available for builders in our ecosystem. So it's broken down into two primary pillars. One is an accelerator pool, which is denominated in secret. We make that available mostly in the form of grants, early stage grants to builders, trying to get them from zero to one. We've already given grants for things like the secret Monero bridge, like the secret NFT standard for developer frameworks like Polar and Grip Tape that are designed to uh, accelerate developer adoption and get them building more stuff on secret and integrating with web applications. So 
that comes from the accelerator pool. Uh, and that, that again is that zero to one phase, but then of course, what happens between one and a million. So that's the ecosystem funds. The ecosystem fund is a $225 million fund there. We have 25 partner funds participating in it, including, uh, defiance, Alameda, hashed, Benbushi, block tower, Arrington, it's, it's 25 incredible funds, all of whom are existing stakeholders in the ecosystem. They either hold layer one positions of secret or their application layer investors or both. Uh, and they are here to provide that capital. This is all new capital in the ecosystem. They want to provide this as seed funding or series A funding, just that early stage capital, but not that like very early stage capital, just after you're trying to accelerate the growth of your applications. We wanted to make it clear to developers, if you want to build for the next decade in the secret ecosystem and build those web three private by default applications that are really going to get adoption, right? Really get these real world use cases, that capital, that support, that long-term support is already here. And you can look at secret on exactly the same level as any of these other L1 ecosystems and know that you're not going to be making any compromises when it comes to the level of funding and support you can get choosing to build in our ecosystem. It's not an either or you can build uh, future thinking uh, and, and build private by default applications and still feel like you're going to get equal levels of support as any other L1 ecosystem. Um, the ecosystem fund is very likely to expand, right? This is not sort of like a fixed amount of money. It's not a fixed amount of funds. It's just a stake in the ground to say, we are already at the scale where any builder can confidently commit to secret and know that they can be making a very good long-term decision for themselves and their user base. Um, but I definitely see this being many times larger as we start to scale the applications in the network, as we get more projects returning for not just A funding, but series B, series C funding, like really being those next generations of applications. Like we've already seen on Ethereum, right? You always see, you've already seen the growth of applications like Uniswap, OpenSea, et cetera. I, I think we have not even begun to see what's possible with secret apps. And the funds that have joined the ecosystem fund and committing that capital alongside the, the core supporters of the secret ecosystem, they obviously feel exactly the same. So if you're interested in applying for either grant funding or if you're building something on secret and you're interested in the ecosystem fund, we did publish a blog about it. Um, all the links are in that blog post about the secret ecosystem fund. Chances are if you Google it, it'll pop up real quick or if you duck, duck, go it. Um, but get in touch. And we will definitely try to handhold you through the early stages of that process. We can get you building something cool. Tor, I had a uh, follow-up question on kind of like a topic of growing out the ecosystem. And, you know, I, I'd imagine we're going to see kind of an explosion of, of DeFi applications um, within Secret Network. Are there any plans right now? I don't believe you guys are currently integrated, but are there any plans to integrate into Chainlink um, as an Oracle solution for your apps within your ecosystem? Interesting question, because uh, we've, we've actually been talking with our team for a very long time. I know that we've already worked with Band, because Band was within the IBC and Cosmos ecosystem. I know Shade just announced a partnership with Supra Oracles. Um, so it, it's one of those things that has definitely been under consideration. There are existing Oracle solutions. I don't know the state of, um, chain link integrations now. I just know that we've been talking with their team for many, many years since back when 
even before we launched uh, as, as a mainnet sovereign chain, back when we were still thinking about doing something as an Ethereum L2, we were talking with their team. And Chainlink also is a project that started uh, in the public blockchain space around the same time as us. Realist, we, we were basically right that same time in 2017 when these projects were coming out. And they also have a very strong um, academic backing and background. So... Yeah, uh, I don't know the plans. That's a great question. But I do know that there's a lot of mutual respect between the teams. And if something's in progress, um, maybe I'll find out right after this space that I've misspoken and actually the integration is well underway. But we, we've definitely spoken with their team multiple times in the past. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome to hear. I've just I've, That's a project that I follow pretty closely. Um, and I, I, I could see some of their solutions that they'll soon be rolling out with having the cross-chain composable smart contracts. I could see that really kind of being a really large benefit for secret because, you know, like you're mentioning, we have all these public chains, right? So say I'm using avalanche, but I may want the privacy of secret that you guys provide. And so with that solution, you could have a larger bundled smart contract where I could actually utilize the privacy preserving functions of secret um, and then, you know, whatever use another layer one, whatever they're specifically good at. And so it was just an interesting thought because um, I see a lot of kind yeah. of uh, symbiotic. Kind of like, you know, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, I can probably go like another five if there's if there's essential questions we got to do. It's, it's getting a little late for me here. And this is my third Twitter space of the day, but I'm, I'm really enjoying the conversation. I'm, I'm also happy to to do more in future, but maybe there's some good wrap up questions or anything that we didn't get to. You can hit me with them. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that was actually um, our last wrap up questions. Uh, Mewtwo, did you want to? Yeah, I think, I think that's close. That closed it out. I mean, Tor, I mean, we, we, sometimes at the end of these episodes, we, we bring on audience questions. I don't know if you want to do one audience question and we sign out. Are there any really good audience questions? Who's got I, one? I don't know. <laughs> All right, guys. If you have a really That's good mystery. question, no <laughs> really good, really based. All right, but if it's not good, I'm not going to answer it, guys. <laughs> Yo, it's, All right, it's got to be the greatest question, question of all time. Just yeah. act like Twitter rugged you and just leave the space, and then we'll we'll close it out. Uh, also, Tor, if you do end up leaving, acting like you got rugged, we record these and put them on YouTube. Do we have uh, your consent? To put that on YouTube? Yeah, I consent to have my stupid voice on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? Hi, am I on? Yes. Yep, you are. Hey, um, I apologize if this is kind of a stupid question, but if there's privacy in a transaction, how do we know that it's going to happen or we're not going to get rugged or... You know, one of the one of the securities of blockchain that I feel like is that I can see what happened. I can go look up my transaction. I can copy it and paste it if I ever want to look at it again. I just open up the Explorer and I can go in there. Um, so, you know, this secret just seems like a little bit more like you have to unwrap a lot of layers to kind of audit and make sure you got what you got in the transaction or the transaction happened the way you thought it was going to happen. So how how does that work here? Like, is there as much, um, you know, uh, ironclad, you know, because it's not exposed, maybe something could happen and you can't really see it happening? 
It's a good question. I mean, we're really requiring people. It's not a stupid question. We're really requiring people to think a little bit differently about Web3. The, the way that Web3 has made everything easy is not the right way, but it is the easy way. Like the, the solution to being like, okay, I need to make sure that, my, that I can always count exactly how much money I have. Uh, so my solution is I'm going to dump it all out on the lawn. And that way, not only will I always know what money I have, everybody's going to know how much money I have. And therefore, no one will, able, will ever be able to say that I don't have all the money. Clearly, I have it. It's all out on my lawn. Um, it's a solution. I wouldn't say that it's a good solution. It's the common Web3 solution, just the public by default solution where absolutely everybody can see that information. Certainly makes things easy. Uh, certainly does not make things secure and certainly does not make me feel comfortable. What we need to do is build utilities on top of a private by default network that makes the user experience feel equally easy, where you can just put your address into one of these utilities. And if you want to see your history, maybe you're not going to the block explorer, but you're just going to an application on top of the block explorer, like you're logging into your bank. You can verify that you're the owner of the account, and now you can decrypt all of your history in that account with whatever contracts you specify. If that's the level of utility that we're enabling, you know, this is just a UX issue. We need to make that really simple for the user because the solution is not to stick to the really easy way that is also incredibly insecure and won't survive years into the future. The solution is to build better utilities where we retain privacy for users, but there's not these massive trade-offs in, in the user experience. What Secret is trying to do is build that kind of ecosystem where you can have these privacy guarantees but you're not being forced to compromise on cost and performance and all these other things that really drive user behavior. Otherwise, you're right. No one is going to accept that. Everybody's going to stick to the public by default approach, even if it's terrible from a security standpoint. If it's the only thing that's usable, we really haven't provided you an alternative. Uh, I think you've set the expectation really, really well, which is that it can't suck for you to use secret. Uh, it should just be better. But I guess I guess my question is, one of the things I like about blockchain is it's it's distributed validation that the data never changes. It's always the same. I mean, how does that work here where it's kind of hidden and yeah, well, that I can answer. Uh, you still get all of the consensus. You still have to agree on the state of the network, even though the state is encrypted. You can't land on 10 different versions of reality. You still have that same, this is actually the really beautiful innovation of Secret Network is that you can still have distributed consensus, but also have privacy. You're just agreeing to the encrypted state of a network. And if anybody were to decrypt that state, they would all get the same result for the state of the network. And if any user were to interact with their data, right? All of these different validators coming to consensus on the state of the network, anybody interacting with the state of the network is going to get the same answer. The point is not to have that be auditable by absolutely everybody at all times. What you want is the auditability to be able to say the state of the network has, you know, there's been consensus reached as to the new state of the network. And that you do get because secret is a layer one because validators constantly have to come to consensus on the new state of the network as transactions and computations are processed, you do still get that. And that is absolutely not a property that you want your blockchain to lose. 
So you get that, but you also gain the ability to have that data be protected without needing to expose it to everybody. In, but th there is no fundamental requirement that all data must be public to everybody to reach consensus. That, that is a false choice. And Secret is trying to provide a better choice, which is you can have the privacy and you can have consensus. Okay, yeah, I guess I, I just have to think about it more like, is there some level where you can say that, okay, there were this many transactions today, you don't have to reveal all the wallets. But, um, you know, I've, I'm, I have a finance and accounting background and a little bit of institutional investment background, but there's got to be a way where there's not complete privacy. And it's just kind of a wink, wink. Yeah, we all agreed that it happened. And nobody had, you know, 10 basis points swiped off their accounts, you know, millions of accounts, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, the, the main point to remember in, in how this whole system works is there is still a truth that is being converged upon. And that truth is still auditable. And every validator in the network still needs to converge on that point of truth. And it's not like we do some sort of daily accounting roll-up where we say, here's the new state of the network 24 hours later, we all agree on it. It's happening block by block. And every block, the network is coming to a new state of consensus as to here is the state of the network, here is what has shifted and changed about the network state. And if that were to diverge, we wouldn't find out after 24 hours, we would find out after every block. So there's always this convergence back on consensus as to the state of the network even though things are encrypted, even though it's an encrypted state, there still needs to be an agreement on that encrypted state of the network. So even though not everybody has the same access to decrypt it, there is still consensus as to what that reality actually is, even though it's not observable by all parties. Hopefully right. that's getting more clear, not less clear as I talk it out, but... No, it's, it's helping me, but I guess like, could there be a situation where all the nodes were cooperating and they said, okay, let's take one basis point. No one's going to know. Um, I mean, is that a possibility? Because one basis point is just not even something that most people would notice, but if you did it regularly all the time, it would be a rounding error. Just out of curiosity. how, how there's, Yeah. The point, the point of these kinds of consensus based systems is there's not a good way for nodes to collude on this type of point. The, the same way that in Bitcoin, what, what keeps everybody in Bitcoin honest is not that everything is fully auditable by everybody. It's that there is a consensus mechanism by which a new network state is reached, where everybody agrees on the state of the network. And if the network state is different, like if you've got 10, let's say there's 10 computers in the network, nine of them say one thing and one says another, whether all of the data is public to all parties or not, you know, the network state, even if the network state is encrypted, if it's different, whether or not it's public, what the underlying data is, you're going to notice one, the other computers are going to notice a difference in that consensus state for the network. And there's going to be a break in consensus. So consensus doesn't have too much to do with whether the state is encrypted or not with secret network. What matters is, does everybody agree on the state of the network, regardless of whether everybody can see the underlying components. So there, there isn't really a way for nodes to collude on some slightly altered state of the network and say, well, no one's gonna notice if we do it this way, because if, if one node cheats and drops out of consensus, everybody's gonna notice because the hash of that state 
that encrypted state has changed. You will see that a node has dropped out of consensus, even if you don't see the way in which they dropped out of consensus, even if you don't see which data was changed, you can tell that somebody, you know, essentially broke the, the consensus pact. So, so it's a hundred percent consensus. It's not like two thirds or 90%. Um, he, here we're going to get a little technical. I would say just it's, it's similar to other cosmos chains in how, in how consensus is formed in the network and there's, you know, and how finality is reached. And it's, it's getting a little, <laughs> I, yeah. it, I, I won't say it's getting too late for this. I'm saying it's getting too late for me to, yeah. to try yeah. to explain this any more clearly than I have. But you're asking a really, really valuable question. I don't want you to feel stupid for asking it. I'm, I'm going to try to find ways of answering this in the future that are, that are going to provide even more clarity. Yeah, I mean, I think it would enhance the value of the coin if we could, you know, I, I guess because I guess one of the values of, of, of blockchain for me was that no one can really cheat on it. I mean, this thing only has value because we believe in it. <laughs> it doesn't have any intrinsic value. It doesn't have cash flow. It doesn't have price to earnings ratios, right? So if, if we can't, if, if, if it's a black box and we can have some understanding as non-technical people that the black box is working and there's not a way to cheat, then, um, then that's good. It's, it just may be like, more absolutely uh kang really really appreciate you coming up it wasn't a stupid question kang so it was awesome um and tor thank you so much for taking the time out tonight we really really appreciate it brother no thank you guys thanks for keeping me on my toes uh i appreciate the opportunity to come and, and chat secret stuff yeah i think a lot of what i'm talking about is Again, you, you have to take some of what you think about Web3 from how it currently is and invert it. But I would just encourage anybody listening, like, just think about what we want to build. Think about what you'd like Web3 to do for you as a user. And then just ask yourself if it's doing it. And I just believe that where we're headed with Secret is a lot closer to where we were trying to go in the first place. And if you want to be a part of that, just join the Secret community, join the community channels. There's like literally hundreds of ways to get involved from the funding to our community programs like secret agents um, to our weekly committee meetings or to any of these secret spaces we do on a regular basis. We do tons of Twitter spaces and I try to get around. So yeah, drop in. Uh, there's literally thousands of things you could be doing starting now to contribute to the version of the future we're trying to build. I appreciate being here guys. Thank you again for bringing me on. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Everyone stay based. Have a good evening. Stay based, everybody. All right on. Have a good night.